0: You'll take your copy of God's Word and open it to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9. This is on page 53 in the pewback Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can read, please take that with you as our gift to you. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 50 of Luke chapter 9 this morning. Who do you believe that Jesus is? What impact does your answer to that question have on your life? These are huge questions. And these are the questions that Jesus helps his disciples to answer in our passage this morning. These are questions that demand a response from all of us. And so like Jesus does, We're going to begin by asking for the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Father, we ask that you would do your work to open our eyes, to reveal to us who Jesus is, and that as you do that, we would order our lives by your spirit accordingly, that everything would bow to him. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. In verses 1 through 20, we see questions about Jesus. 1 through 20, questions about Jesus. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now Luke's been giving us a glimpse of the pace and volume of Jesus' ministry. We get the sense that he was constantly on the move, meeting the never-ending demands of the people. The reports about him were spreading far and wide, which led to more and more people coming out to see who he was for themselves. But this demand wasn't a problem for Jesus. In fact, he actually sends the twelve throughout the surrounding villages to spread the word even more broadly. As his ambassadors, they performed his works and proclaimed his words with his authority. Now, we might read into this a certain level of political expediency like we see every four years in this country. But this isn't Jesus reserving his time to the most heavily populated regions while allowing the B team to give his stump speeches in the lesser-known towns. This also isn't Jesus becoming intoxicated with his own fame to the point of never being satisfied until he breaks into all the new markets. Jesus isn't a politician, and he's not a celebrity as we would understand it. So what does this tell us about him? Well, for starters, it showcases his greatness as a teacher. Remember, the disciples weren't budding seminary students preparing to begin their life as religious leaders. They were regular folks who mostly had blue-collar jobs, and yet already they were being delegated with a serious commission and we see they fulfilled it faithfully. They simply followed Jesus' example through his enabling. And in ways they couldn't have understood then, this little taste of hands-on ministry served in part to prepare them for what life would be like when Jesus ascended back into heaven and sent his Spirit. And this also reminds us that as fully man, Jesus was only in one place at one time. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be everywhere his disciples went, but through them, the spread of the gospel was multiplied. Now, Jesus wasn't after amassing the greatest mob possible, but he was eager for everyone to hear the good news, from the least of them to the greatest. And that's exactly what Luke tells us happened. Everyone from no-name villages all the way to Herod the Tetrarch heard about Jesus. And what they heard left them with all sorts of questions. We find the main one on Herod's mind as he wonders, who is this in verse 9? Now, in case this isn't clear to you, I'm not, not trying to talk down to you, but just to be clear, it wasn't that Herod or the crowds didn't know Jesus' name. This wonder and amazement expressed in questions like this is owing to the uniqueness of Jesus' ministry. You see, part of the difficulty that people were having figuring Jesus out was that they were trying to use past experience to help them understand who he was. They'd witnessed John the Baptist's ministry firsthand, so they started there. But that didn't quite fit, and furthermore, he'd been beheaded, and so he didn't fit. And so they went back further to what they'd read about Elijah and prophets hundreds of years ago. But those didn't quite fit either. And that's because Jesus wasn't just another great man of God he was and is the God-man, God in the flesh. No one in their history or sense could compare with him. And the more they tried, the more confused they'd be. And the feeding of the 5,000 men helps to clarify and bring this point home. So once the twelve return and report, Jesus takes them away from the people for what they assume will be a time of rest and refreshment in a desolate place. But when the people learn where they're staying on their little retreat, they follow. And the peace and quiet of the countryside are drowned out with the stampede of thousands upon thousands of people bustling to see Jesus. Now, on the face of it, it seems like the intentions of the trip have failed. But Jesus isn't begrudging toward the crowds. He welcomes them and personally tells them of the kingdom of God and heals them. Now, I think this is important. He leads in the service. And this is just after the disciples have been commissioned to do the very same things with other groups of people. He could have said, okay, you take the lead here, but he doesn't. Instead of going to the green room past the velvet robe, Jesus mingles and ministers until late in the day. Now, it's at that point that the disciples decide it's time for them to intervene. It seems like they're a little emboldened by having been given added responsibilities recently. And so they take things a step further and assert themselves into the itinerary planning so they can get back to what they thought they went out there for in the first place. Now, although none of them I'm sure would have said this, their recommendation in verse 12 seems to suggest that they think Jesus isn't aware of the hour and the place and the needs of the people. And Jesus responds to this oblivious blunder by graciously putting the disciples in their place. He tells them, if you really want to help, then you should give them something to eat. Oops. They're not even able to satisfy the hunger of a young boy, let alone 5,000 grown men. We can relate. Friends, do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever look at your clock, look at your calendar, your bank account, your past training, and think to yourself, "There's not enough." Do you ever look at the needs in your own life and the lives of the people around you, or even the li- and the needs of the people far away from you, and think to yourself, "There's too many? I'm sure we've all felt this way at different points. In fact, if you haven't, you just don't care enough about other people and you should feel bad. Why is that? Well, it's because we're being confronted with our limits, with our finiteness. We really don't have it within ourselves to meet all the needs we see around us. There are times that we can't just dig a little deeper or try a little harder. This is a lesson that all of us need to learn. We need to learn that we have been called, not in these moments, to feel hopeless in our helplessness, but to shift our dependence from ourselves to God. The needs of the people were astronomically greater than the supply the disciples had. Jesus hadn't told them to feed the people because he thought they could. He knew they couldn't, but he was teaching them he could. He was lovingly confronting them with their own inability and moving them to trust in his supreme ability. And so after they'd acknowledged they were at the end of themselves, Jesus had the disciples separate the 5,000 men into about 100 groups. Let's call it about 10 groups per disciple, okay? And this little act of division gave a manageable structure for the 12 to make sure no one got left out as they served such a large group, but it still hadn't changed the disparity between the amount of people and the amount of food. And yet, Jesus takes the measly provisions that the disciples have to offer, asks the Father to bless them, and then hands them out for the disciples to serve the people. And there was enough for everyone. In fact, we know there was more than enough for everyone. Each disciple gathered enough left over to fill an entire basket. They thought they wouldn't have enough, but when they set out to serve him obediently, entrusting the Lord's provision, they had more than they needed. When they acted in obedience, the Lord blessed them and provided over and above what they needed to minister to the needs of the people. So Christian, you need to understand that the Lord will often ask of you more than you are able to do. And he does that to remind you of your dependence on him. Your inability isn't an excuse for disobedience. It's why you must embrace your dependence of him. And when you do, He'll give you everything you need and more to do all he commands you to do. He often calls us to things that are impossible for us. But he never calls us to something without empowering us to do it. And sometimes that empowering doesn't come until we've started to obey, even while our minds are still swimming with questions. Loved ones, God isn't hindered by our weakness and inability, and we won't be either when we're trusting him and not ourselves. Now, all that application is true from that last section, but the return to the questions about Jesus in verses 18 through 20 reminds us of the main point. And Jesus fed thousands upon thousands of people with just five loaves and two fish. Who does that? Who can do that? Well, as God had provided for the nation of Israel in the desert with manna and quail, so Jesus was able to provide for the people in a desolate place. All of these thousands of people had now literally tasted evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet the vast majority of them still didn't understand. What about the 12? Did they fare any better? Well, this moment was a milestone in the disciples' journey with Jesus. He'd called them to follow him after spending all night in prayer. And now he asks them this all-important question after he prays. He begins by asking them who the crowds say that he was. And their answers are the same of what had been reported to Herod back in verses 7 and 8. But then Jesus makes it personal. He does this. Who do you say that I am? He asks his disciples. And this, friends, is the all important, eternity shaping question that demands an answer from every single one of us. No one can answer this question for you. You must answer this question on your own. Who do you believe Jesus is? A great man? A good teacher? a compelling leader, an exaggerated myth, a misunderstood legend? Well, Peter gets it right. Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Now, we should notice that that wasn't an answer that the crowds had been giving. Where did that answer come from? God. Peter's confession on behalf of the disciples is God answering Jesus' prayer. As they'd witnessed his life, his teaching, his miracles, for some time now, the Father had been revealing to them the identity of his Son. The disciples finally understood who Jesus was. Or do they? Next, in verses 21 through 36, we see answers from Jesus to see if that's really the case. Verses 21 through 36, answers from Jesus. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, And Jesus' response to Peter's confession comes like a jolt of lightning. One that, like last night, shakes you a little bit. They'd confessed to believing Jesus was the Christ, but he knew they didn't truly understand what the Christ came to do. And so he tells them as directly and as clearly as he can, despite what they think, the Christ came to suffer be rejected, be killed, and be raised. And they believed that he was the king of the kingdom of God. They'd been out proclaiming, but they had no category for a king like this. Suffering, rejection, and execution were the opposite of what the people anticipated that Christ would do. And that included the disciples. They assumed that Christ would overthrow Rome, make Israel great again, and put them into power. But here Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms, he came to die a miserable death before being raised. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell them that that's not just what his life is going to look like, but what their lives are going to look like too. This is what we can expect when we commit to follow Jesus. You ready? Daily denial and death. These are the commitments all Christ's followers make. The disciples thought following Jesus would lead to power, authority, privilege. They thought it would mean their health, their wealth, their prosperity once he rose to the top. But Jesus is totally up front with them. There is no fine print with Jesus and tells them that following him isn't going to look like that in the short run. Now, it strikes me, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but it strikes me that denying ourselves is exactly the opposite of what our culture tells us to do. In fact, I don't know if you've caught wind of this, But our culture believes denying ourselves is the greatest possible sin we could commit. Listen to your heart. Follow your dreams. Believe in yourself. Do what's right for you. And don't you listen to anyone who says any differently. And the sad thing is that that self-centered slogan mentality has crept into the church Sacrifice and self-denial have been labeled legalism to assuage our consciences of the bankruptcy of cultural, convenient, creature comfort Christianity so that many have become content with a less-than-following-Christ version. But church, is Christ unclear here? Do we think he's joking or being dramatic? He is as serious as life and death. All who want to live must die to themselves in the pursuit of King Jesus. This is our daily, full-time, 24-7 job, friends. Jesus is our life. Jesus demands all of who we are, not to keep us from life, but to keep us from death and give us that which is truly life. We don't deny ourselves for denial's sake, like some form of spirituality or spiritualism. We deny ourselves in order to follow him. We say no to our sins so that we can say yes to God. So think about this. What do you want so bad right now that you'd give up having Christ forever. What amount of power? What amount of money? What amount of popularity? What amount of any temporary fleeting pleasure is worth going to hell over? Friends, that amount doesn't exist. You can either lose yourself in pursuit of the world or find yourself in the pursuit of Christ. If we have everything but Christ, we have nothing. If we have nothing but Christ, we have everything. Friend, if you're ashamed of Jesus and the life that he's called you to live, then don't be surprised when you reap what you've sown when he returns. Church, let's not get high and mighty. This is a temptation for all of us every day. We have to choose Christ and his heavenly glory instead of what little tiny puny glories that this world has to offer. Jesus isn't calling us anywhere that he hasn't already gone. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He went to the cross before us, for us. He took on himself the death we deserve for our sins. He gave his life in the place of ours. And yet because he'd lived a perfectly righteous and sinless life, God received his payment and raised him from the dead on the third day, just like Jesus prophesied in verse 22. The reason that Jesus could bear the eternal wrath of God for our sins is because Jesus... Though a man, was and is God. In fact, that's what these three disciples were privileged to get a glimpse of up on the mountain. They beheld the kingdom of God as Jesus' true identity was more fully revealed to them. He's the ancient of days, as Damon read from Daniel 7. He is the eternal Son of God. You see, what makes Jesus worthy of our lives and total devotion is that he's God. If he's not God, we are wasting our time, friends. Jesus is asking a lot of his disciples. That includes us. He's asking for everything. But then what these disciples see in this moment of transfiguration helps to explain that he's not asking too much. Again, Luke tells us that this major moment was marked by prayer. On the mountain, Jesus' eternal glory shines through. And two of the very prophets put forward as possibilities for who Jesus is show up in spirit and talk with him about the events he just explained to his disciples. And once these drowsy disciples are fully awake, Moses and Elijah and the glory of God incarnate are staring them in the face. And Peter flounders in the stupor of shock to offer some kind of an appropriate response to this miraculous occasion to honor each one of them. Now, suggesting that Jesus was one among equals with Moses and Elijah would have been the highest praise for anyone else, but not Jesus, Luke gives Peter the benefit of the doubt. He says he doesn't even know what he's talking about, and we can understand. But there's something important that Luke is showing us to include that in what Peter blurted out. You see, even in the unimaginable glory of this moment, the disciples still don't recognize fully the uniqueness of Jesus. They're still finding out that he isn't just one among equals with Moses and Elijah. He's infinitely and eternally greater than them. He isn't just another holy man. He is God the Son. And to make that abundantly clear, the presence of God envelops them in this cloud, which is common in the Old Testament to signify the presence of God. In this moment of blindness, they're in a cloud. They can't see. groping around trying to figure out what's happening. But their ears are open to hear these words from God the Father. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter's confession from verse 20 agrees with God's. On the authority of the Father, Jesus is who he says he is. And they should listen to him. So who is this Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the Christ. And finally in verses 37 through 50, let's see some responses to Jesus and think about how we should respond. Responses to Jesus. So questions about Jesus, answers from Jesus, responses to Jesus. Pick up in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So after the four of them rejoined the whole group the next day, it's back to the Monday morning grind as it were. Their literal mountaintop experience is over. The reality of the world's inglorious brokenness is still there waiting for them. Even with all the crowds they had seen, what they had seen Jesus do and and all that they had heard him say, they still continued in their faithlessness. And this father is representative of the whole generation. That's why Jesus says that. And we get the sense from the way he asks for Jesus' help that he's thinking of him like every other ordinary doctor that needs to be told the symptoms to determine the right treatment. The man at least seems to think that Jesus needs to be coaxed into helping his boy. And maybe there's even a subtle rub that he hasn't trained his disciples well enough since they couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus knows that the people aren't coming to him, even after all they've seen, because they know that he's the Christ. But it's still important to notice that Jesus' groan isn't out of impatient frustration like ours would be. He's eager for them to get it, he's eager for what's broken to be mended. That's why he came. And that was the burden that he came to bear. So after he healed the boy, the people were astonished with the majesty of God, but they still didn't grasp the majesty of Christ. They marveled at what he did, but they didn't believe in who he was. And that meant their attraction to Jesus was hollow. Many of these same people, even one of the 12, would have a role in his death. And Jesus knows that. He wants to make sure his disciples know it too. And so, in the middle of the hip hip hoorays that are coming from the crowd, Jesus turns to the disciples and rephrases what he told them before He's about to be delivered into the hands of men. Soon he'll be betrayed, arrested, tried, sentenced, mocked, beaten, bound, crucified, and buried. The disciples don't get it, but very soon they would. And for now, they were still blinded to what true greatness really looks like. Now, Luke tells us the disciples got in an argument jockeying for position. They were fighting about which among them was the greatest. Now, if that just sounds really childish of these men, well, that's because it is. The nice thing about the Bible is that it doesn't try to cover up people's flaws and warts. It lays it all out there for us to be able to see. And sometimes that means they look ridiculous, which means that we can, sim- we can identify with them. But don't make the mistake of thinking to yourself that you would have acted differently in their shoes. And Jesus, the one who is truly great, knew the metrics that they were using He knew their desires for greatness were built on false expectations that he'd come to be a worldly king instead of realizing his kingdom is not of this earth. But still, Jesus doesn't give up on them. He turns their thinking upside down with a child. Now, the point isn't children are great. Children are great. Let's just get that out of the way. But what they're not is independent What Jesus is pointing out to the disciples is that they're thinking about their greatness independently from their dependence on God. So similar themes we saw with the 5,000. They were asking the wrong question altogether because they should have been focusing on God's greatness and not their own. There's no boasting in our appearance or our power or our abilities when we realize if there's any little fraction of goodness in us, it didn't come from us. It came from God. And so like the John, John the Baptist, who Jesus said in chapter 7, was the greatest person under the Old Covenant, our desire must be for Jesus to increase and us to decrease. That's true greatness. Brothers and sisters, don't forget the most insignificant Christian still bears the name of Christ. The least impressive Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. And that should shape how we treat each other. In the way that we honor and serve and love one another. The power and authority of the least of us is derived from our great God then his greatness more than enough makes up for our lack of a greatness. And that's why we can joyfully serve in obscurity without anybody noticing, without even being recognized to the praise of the Father. It may seem like no one sees you. I know one appreciates the work that you do in service of this kingdom and God's church, but yet God sees. And he's doing more through you and the other people around you than you know. So that he would get the glory and that you would be blessed. And that takes us into John's response in verse 49. Jesus just said receiving a child in his name meant receiving him. And apparently that reminded John of someone they'd met who'd been casting out demons in his name. It seems like the disciples were concerned that their exclusive rights to wield Jesus' name were being infringed upon by someone without the copyright. And the 12 were probably embarrassed by their poor showing back with the demon-possessed boy in verses 37 through 43, and they think people outside their group should not be allowed to make the varsity squad look bad, like a scene out of Rudy. Now, they might have told themselves that they wanted to protect the purity of their mission, but it was really just pride They wanted to be the only ones with this kind of power and authority from Jesus. But Jesus tells them they're wrong. Just because this person wasn't known to their group didn't mean he wasn't a part of their team. When we're about exalting God and not ourselves, then we'll cooperate with others even when they have success while we struggle. Just because this person wasn't in their group didn't mean that God wasn't working through them. In fact, when we realize that God is working through other people and not just us, then we will rejoice when they succeed, even when we struggle, because we understand we're serving the same God on the same team. And church, praise the Lord that His work in Camden, his work in Arkansas, his work in the world is bigger than just our local church. We should celebrate God's work in other gospel preaching churches and not try to compete with it. It's true even outside of our denomination, believe it or not, that God works through other churches. If there's something within us that wants our church to be prominent over other Jesus-loving churches, we need to repent. But we also need to remember that they're for us and we're for them because we're all serving the Lord Christ. That's why we pray for other local churches on Wednesdays. That's why we partner together with them and fellowship when we can together. That's why we shouldn't compare our baptism numbers, giving figures, attendance records as a way to fuel rivalries. Yes, this happens. We all have a role to play in advancing the kingdom of God. And it is pride to think that we are the only tool God uses in his kingdom. Our attitude should be like Moses's in Numbers 11 or Paul's in Philippians 1, one that comes from humility, that believes the more hands the better, regardless of who gets credit. And when we do that, we put the spotlight where it needs to be, not on us and our greatness, but on God and his greatness. So in conclusion to my non-Christian friends here, how will you respond to Christ's greatness. Who do you say that he is? Who do you believe him to be? Well, the good news is that Jesus did what he said he would do, and he was who he said, and the Father said that he was and is. He lived the perfect life we've all failed to live, died the death our sins deserve, and was raised to life to prove that all those who put their faith in him as the God-man will be saved. Friend, don't be like Herod, who wanted to see Jesus in order to gawk at an entertaining show. Don't be like the disciples and the crowds who were slow to believe the clear truth they were presented with. Believe in Jesus this morning. Answer his call by giving him your life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do that great work in all of our hearts. Father, even for those of us who are trusting you now, that you would cause us more and more to be drawn away from the world, away from our sin, to finding our life and our identity in Christ. We pray for those here that don't yet know you, ask that you might soften their hearts, open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel so clearly presented by Jesus here. Help them not to think about following Christ as a rosy picture. But help them to see that your journey, the path that you have laid out for our feet, is worth it. We ask that you would do this for the sake of your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.